0: Welcome to Grating the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored, interviews William Mann, Assistant Professor of History at Central Connecticut State University, about new efforts to uncover and celebrate Connecticut's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender history.
1: June is celebrated as Gay Pride Month. And today we're going to talk about some of the milestones in Connecticut's LGBTQ history. My guest, Professor William Mann, is an assistant professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, where he teaches classes on LGBTQ history, LGBTQ film, and the history of AIDS. He is also the director of the university's LGBTQ Center. From 1989 to 1995, he was editor and later publisher of Metroline, the state's LGBTQ news magazine, as well as coordinator of Your Turf, the first LGBTQ youth group in the state. In 1989, along with Terry Reid, William founded the long running queer film festival known today as Outfilm Connecticut. He wrote a brief history of Connecticut gay media for our winter 2020 issue in Connecticut Explored. So welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: This is such a great topic. And I'm so familiar with the work you did with your students and the Connecticut Historical Society on the uh, Gay History Timeline that's available on the CHS website. You know, the LGBT community is very inclusive, but it's also very diverse. Could you tell us what LGBTQ stands for?
2: It's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and Queer is often added. So the LGBTQ is sometimes added as well to cover people who don't fit in any of those categories. You know, in fact, the LGBTQ community is probably the most diverse community there, there is because you know, we are every race, we are every religion, we are every gender, we are ever from every socioeconomic class, we are immigrants, we are native-born. So it's it's really about understanding and and, and including all of the different identities that people live with.
1: My college age niece uses, she self identifies with the word queer, mm-hmm. which when I first heard it about 10 years ago, I thought, oh, what a harsh word because yeah. that was was considered a very harsh word uh, when I was her age. Can right. you talk a little bit of, uh, as a historian about how that kind of word has evolved?
2: Sure. Queer, queer was, of course, in, in its origins used as a pejorative against gay people, uh, queer people. It was during the AIDS crisis that queer was started to be reclaimed by some of the younger activists. A lot of older activists were not happy with it because they still associated it with uh, a negative connotation. But for, for the younger people, they were saying, we want to be more aggressive. We want to be more direct. And there was also a growing sense that queer was an umbrella term. You know, we used to say gay, lesbian, bisexual, you know, this was saying everyone who doesn't fit the heteronormative pattern or the heteronormative identity becomes is is queer and that we can use queer to include everyone. Um, And that's really why it's included today. And that's why it is still so popular among younger people. They, you know, so many young people, you know, who, um, maybe once would have identified as gay or lesbian or even trans now say, I'm going to use the word queer because it unites me to the, the larger community of, of everyone.
1: The timeline project that you did with your students really goes back to the beginning of Connecticut. How did the LGBT commun- community or movement really begin in Connecticut?
2: Well, unlike New York and other larger urban areas in the country, we don't really see the emergence of a vibrant, visible gay community uh, in Connecticut um, until the late 1940s. You know, Connecticut's the land of steady habits, right? So, you know, what was going on in New York and Harlem and Greenwich Village would not have flown in Connecticut at the time. But I do believe, since we are so close to New York, that there had to be some travel back and forth. Um, one of the things we did in the timeline was try to look at, t- to try to find queer stories in the from the earlier years, from the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s, we uh, looked at what was presented, say, at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, because there was, uh, Chick Austin was, was very empathic towards homosexual people and often brought in queer artists to the Athenaeum, so we found those kinds of things. Other productions. Mae West came to Bridgeport in her her very gay affirming play, The Drag. Um, so it was we had to dig to find that information. That wasn't it. wasn't like there was a a gay magazine or a history of gay clubs at that point, as there were in New York in the 1920s. The Harlem Renaissance was a, a vibrant queer subculture. So I do believe that that Connecticut was influenced by the by the. Um, outside queer subculture, but we really don't see the emergence of it until the late 1940s, after World War II, when we start to see bars like the Brook in Westport and Nick's Cafe in Hartford, when we see them um, establish themselves and make no disguise of the fact that they are um, they were queer, they were gay. Um, not as if, and I, by saying that, I, I need to make clear it's not as if they were advertising as gay bars because that could have shut them down. There were there were vice laws and there were, you know, simply being homosexual was grounds to be charged um, for a disorderly person or having a disorderly house. So, but it was un- it was very clear who their clientele was. They weren't trying to pretend their clientele was someone else. And people eventually began to know this was a safe place to go. But We don't see that until 20, 30 years after we see it in the rest of the country.
1: I know that when you... Uh, wrote for the magazine for Connecticut Explorers Winter 2020 issue. You talked about your own experience as becoming a a writer for a community newspaper, and you didn't even use your real name. Right. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, it was, um, you know, rather ironic that I was, for the first time, I was found myself in the midst of a, a gay community and a supportive community and affirming community Helped me accept myself, Um, but I was still too scared to use my full name because my parents didn't know at the time, and my parents were in Connecticut. And I, you know, it was it was people who used their full names were were courageous. They were really um, putting themselves out for a a lot of uh, hassle legally, um, professionally, um, with their families. So I was I was still part of that fear. In, in when I first started writing for Metro Lion, which was back in 1987.
1: You know, when I moved to Hartford in 1982, it seemed like a pretty Button down, very insurance capital kind of place. Absolutely. Uh, and I don't think I saw a lot of openly gay community, either places or events or newspapers. So I right. think- Yeah,
2: and, and it really was because of the, um, when it started to change was after the, the civil rights movement for African-Americans and, and the feminist movement. And in the 1960s, there was a um, the canon of uh, Christchurch, Church Cathedral, a man by the name of Clinton Jones, in 1963, he started an initiative called Project H. And it was about ministering to homosexuals and finding their needs, understanding their their circumstances. But what it became was actually a community builder. And so within a few years, we've got the Kalos Society, um, which was the first gay political group in Connecticut. And, you know, we start seeing in 1970, it was the first attempt to pass a gay rights law. So um, it failed utterly, but, um, and took it failed 12 more times, but it was, it was the start. It was, the, it was the start, but yeah, it, it was always going to be slower because of what you, you say, Hartford was very buttoned down, very, you know, land of steady habits. And, but, but there was this underground that was you know, beginning to percolate and, and come and come to the surface.
1: So I know the law changes in 1971, and then that really kicks off a huge effort to provide for legislative equality for the gay community. Right. What were those factors that got that rolling, and how did it proceed?
2: Well, I think part of it is, as I mentioned earlier, there even though Connecticut was you know kind of provincial and not connected to the the big urban networks of the country, we were close enough that a lot of people began to go into New York and um, travel elsewhere and see and understand groups like the Mattachine Society, which was a a national group for LGBT people in the 1950s and 60s, also the Daughters of Belitis, uh, which advocated for lesbian rights. And I would imagine many, both of those organizations had huge memberships. And I would imagine some of them were from Connecticut, so the the idea that one could could fight for their rights and and stand up for their own experiences, I, I think, was always there in Connecticut, or at least it was beginning to uh, develop. And then by the time of the nineteen seventies, which was a you know a great time of uh, political change and social so, social unrest about the war, about um, civil rights, that. I, I believe that the the Connecticut LGBT community saw this was, okay, this is our time. This is our time to start moving forward.
1: And what were those legislative initiatives in the 80s?
2: So the, the gay rights bill was put up several times throughout the, the 1970s and the 1980s. Each time they got a few more votes, but ultimately they always failed. I think actually there was, there was also um, a li- little bit later in the 1980s, there was an attempt to include uh, gay people in the uh, state's hate crimes protections. Um, that was very contentiously fought by by church groups, by civic organizations, but it, it did pass. It passed in 1990, finally, where where sexual orientation became part of the the groups c- protected by Connecticut's hate crimes law. But really, in many ways, the, the this legislative drive this. This attempt to change policy was spurred by the feminist movement because many women in the feminist movement were lesbian, um, gay women, um, bisexual women, and it was kind of a natural partnership. And in the 1970s, much of the organization of Connecticut's gay rights initiative it was partly... Kalo Society, which was both men and women, but it was also groups like the Hartford Women's Center and other feminist organizations that were pushing for these changes. So right from the very start, Connecticut had a very diverse, at least in terms of gender, uh, movement where women were as, as sometimes even even more visible than men in the movement.
1: I remember when uh, in my late 20s, when I the, when I knew someone personally who died of AIDS mm-hmm. and it just was so striking to me, uh, it still makes me almost tear up because it w- You know, we were in our 20s, he was a young professional, he was in my field, he had worked for the New York City Landmarks Commission, he was bright, charming, and that, was the, that, that just uh, to this day makes me tear up as the, as I said, the first person I knew of AIDS, right. died in Connecticut. You know, tell us a little bit about the impact of the AIDS epidemic.
0: Yeah, the
2: AIDS epidemic, um, it forever changed the movement. Um, first of all, we lost so many people. I'm, I'm kind of considered the elder gay because there aren't a lot of people older than I am. The generation right above me was decimated. And we lost all of their history. We lost all of their knowledge. We lost all of their skills. And so it was devastating for the, for the movement but at the same time what aids did was galvanize the movement because now we weren't just fighting for you know some kind of theoretical gay rights we were we were fighting for our lives and we we're fighting for the lives of our friends so in the 1980s and the 1990s gay organizations took on hiv as a as a cause and how we were we fought for um, you know, greater access to prevention. And we fought for greater access to needle exchange. We fought for the the attempt to, um, fought against any attempts to demonize people with AIDS as if somehow they they deserve to have this disease. And that also built a lot of coalitions with other communities. You know, when I mentioned that the, the early um, gay movement in Connecticut was diverse, it wasn't yet racially diverse but during aids because aids particularly hit the black and and latino uh, populations hard i mean very hard there there were alliances and suddenly people began to understand well you know how do we separate uh, gay issues from issues around racial justice because we can't because some you know because we there are people of color who are gay and we need to integrate these two issues um, and, and, you know, it was just, it was such a, it's hard to remember that period of time because there was, there were literally, it's kind of cliched to say, but there were, there were funerals every week. And, um, you know, I lost my, my mentor at the time, Victor DeLugan, who was a professor at the university of Hartford, and he had spearheaded the, uh, uh the move for the gay rights bill and for various AIDS legislation. And, and he died and it was, it was a huge loss, but We were galvanized and more and more people got involved in in the fight because of that, because they had lost someone, or because they themselves, you know, were HIV positive and were were living with HIV. So it was it was both devastating and yet also re-energizing.
1: I know the timeline talks about partnerships with black churches, for example, or the Hispanic Health Council. That's right. Reaching out to those. Uh, communities of color in that crisis and it makes me think of today where we have to really reach out to those communities with this virus the coronavirus too
0: that's right um
1: so i it, it was such a it's a devastating epidemic to say the least and it seems like there was such foot dragging as far as responding to it properly medically Um, Oh,
2: absolutely. Uh, Yeah, it was, it was the first cases of AIDS were diagnosed in this country in
0: 1981.
2: And the Reagan administration didn't even acknowledge that AIDS was um, a cause of concern for about five years after that. So for about five years, the, the disease just grew and grew and grew without any kind of federal response. That was left to groups like AIDS Project Hartford, um, AIDS Project New Haven, uh, Latinos Contra Sida to, to fight locally because we had, we, we had to create our own resources. We had to create our own um, standards. You know, we had to find ways to reach people who might otherwise not being, you know, m- might not have any information around how to protect themselves from HIV. So it was really a, a governmental failure. And, you know, just my own personal opinion was just like with um, covid in the beginning, people felt those who were dying were expendable. And, you know, in, in the case of COVID, it was older people, people in rest homes. In, in case of AIDS, it was homosexual men and women of color who were, who were dying of AIDS and, and drug users, IP drug users. So there was felt there wasn't the same urgency from, uh, from in a national response and even sometimes at the state, state response to say, this is, a, this is a national health emergency that we have to address. Took a long time for that realization to sink in.
1: We'll be right back after this message.
0: Visit Litchfield, Connecticut from the comfort of your home with the new Tapping Reeve House virtual tour. This immersive experience takes visitors on a journey into the life of a student arriving in Litchfield to study at one of the town's two important schools, the Litchfield Law School and the Litchfield Female Academy. Explore the legacy of America's first law school and its students, including Roger Sherman Baldwin and the infamous Aaron Burr. Start your tour today by visiting litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org slash museums slash virtual tour. This project is made possible by funding from Connecticut Humanities.
1: What about the movement for marriage equality? That was a huge push that took, what, a decade or more?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it was the gay rights bill was passed in 1991. It was a huge celebration. It finally, we finally had protections for gay and lesbian people. Uh, we don't get the transgender rights law until 2011. So trans people were not protected during that period of time. But there was a there was a kind of a a reevaluation of the movement after the gay rights bill passed, because people had been fighting that for that so long. It was where do we go from here? What happens next? And many people latched on to the idea of uh, marriage. And we see various towns enacting civil, uh, civil unions, um, which were not was was not equal treatments, but we, these were always these were steps in that direction. And one of the things that um, some of the organizers for Love Makes a Family, which was the marriage equality movement in Connecticut, I wasn't in Connecticut during that period of time, but I do know the activists who were there. And they said what was so different about the marriage equality fight was. We weren't persuading legislators, because this was going to be something from the courts. So we were, we, we were out there changing hearts and minds, we had to go meet with people we had to, you know, we had to, you know, come together with other organizations to, to sponsor educational programs or just kind of listening uh, sessions. So it was a whole different strategy how this we were going to get this to pass. But, you know, Connecticut was, I believe, the third state in the country to, to the, the Connecticut courts um, did allow for marriage equality before the, the victory in nationwide. So the campaign was very successful. And, and in many ways, those sorts of campaigns are more important, perhaps in some ways, <laughs> than legislative Victories and the legislative victories are very, very important, and we need the Equality Act passed in in Congress. Um, we need protections for for people in a in a legal um, uh, rule of law uh, perspective. But winning hearts and minds is even more important, and and that's what was done during the marriage equality. I mean, there you know the, the the motto was "Love is love," and you know everybody could kind of relate to that.
1: It's nice to hear that Connecticut moved from. Uh, the land of steady habits, to a third in the nation.
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm <very>
1: yeah. Happy. <laughs> once,
2: once Connecticut got going, it was it was in the forefront, and still is in the forefront. Um, and you know, we were one of the first states to pass uh, laws against the use of the gay panic defense, which which got many. Uh, murderers of of LGBT people off because, well, you know, it was justified, you know, they they didn't realize this person was gay and they panicked. And Connecticut also was one of the first to pass laws against the the really horrible uh, conversion therapy programs for minors so that, you know, it's been defined as gay torture. And, you know, so Connecticut really, you know, starting in the, the 1980s, Connecticut really bolted to the forefront.
1: I know that there's millions of people that watch RuPaul's Drag Race or right. Pose. did Hartford have that kind of, or New Haven, which is very artsy. Did Connecticut have uh, a drag scene or a ballroom scene?
2: Oh, it sure did. Uh, it, again, it was a little bit later, you know, coming to Connecticut, but once it got going, it was very vibrant in the 1980s and the 1990s. And I think actually into the early 2000s Hartford had Several drag houses. There was the House of Nations, the House of Pleasure, and and others. Um, with you know, I'm thinking of Mucha Mucha, Pleasure, uh, who's who's been a longtime activist in Connecticut and how uh, she put together the first drag balls at the um, it was at the old Gay Community Center on Broad Street in Hartford, and then they moved to larger venues. After that, it was it was a real it was a real scene. It was a it was a vibrant subculture and a really important community builder as well. I remember I was the um, uh, I was one of the facilitators for Your Turf which was a an early support group for uh, gay and lesbian youth. And I remember one young man came in to, to to the meeting and he was terrified and scared and he you know his family wasn't supportive and he just you know basically just sat in a corner and and didn't participate but then he was invited to one of the drag balls. And he got into drag and he blossomed. He became this, I remember seeing him parade down the, the runway. And I thought, is this the same boy that, you know, was too scared scared to say anything in, in the group? And so it was, a, it was a way of really building family for many people who felt isolated from their own families.
1: I know you were involved in the creation of the Gay Film Festival. Yes. So t- talk a little bit about that, because that's still around.
2: It is. It, I'm, I'm I'm very pleased that it's still around and being run very well and professionally. We started it. We were just kind of Terry Reed um, was another activist at the time, and she and I actually were the the originators of the film festival back in 1988. And we always called we were like Mickey and Judy putting on a show. We, you know, we were just you know, hey, let's rent some films and show them. But yeah, you know, how that came about was during the the fight for the gay rights bill. I, one one activist, one of the key activists at the time, John Benelli, said to me. You know, what we really need is is an organization that doesn't focus on politics and legislative and electoral politics and all that, because a lot of people are turned off by that. He said, I think if we had a cultural organization, we would tap into a whole other group of people. And so Terry Reid and I formed Alternatives, which was um, a cultural group where we, we had salons and we did a zine and um, various other kind of culturally things. And we were stunned by how many people showed up for the first meeting. It was you know, close to 100 people. And so then we came up with the idea of doing the film festival. And it was, again, we, we, we went in there without any expectations, without any um, experience in putting on a film festival, but we had hundreds of people come for the weekend at Cine Studio Trinity. And, you know, I was only involved with it for a year or two, um, and then Terry stayed on for a while, and then it was taken over by other people and, and eventually became Out Film, which is, you know, a really vibrant organization today.
1: Are there other examples of that type of film festival across the country? Is that an unusual thing or a common thing?
2: Well, there are, there are many LGBT film festivals around the country, though Connecticut is, was, I believe, at least one of the first, and certainly one of the first in uh, in an area outside a big metropolitan city, it's also, I believe, the oldest continually operated film festival in Connecticut. So that's, you know, that that's that's saying something. It really s- still does serve a need.
1: So those community newspapers like Metro Line, and then the the radio station program, it seems like those really were some of the first very visible, easy to find expressions yes. of the gay of gay culture in Hartford.
0: You can you talk a little
2: bit about that? Sure. the The, the first gay publications in Connecticut were um, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. Um, there was a, there was a publication called The Griffin that only lasted a few years, and a couple of other publications came and came and went after that. But it was really with the establishment of the Metropolitan Community Church MCC, which which was a, a gay and lesbian congregation, Christian congregation. That was the The beginning of kind of a a regular message being sent to people because they published MCC News, which wasn't just stuff about the church. It was also stuff about the community and and stories of people and profiles of people. And eventually MCC News became Metroline. And that was run by John Crowley, who had been part of MCC and and Metroline was around for the next two decades. Um, that's the magazine I, I went to work for. But what was so important about these these attempts to reach people and also Keith Brown's Gay Spirit Radio, it was able to, these things were able to reach people in their own homes. They could take Metroline and go home and read, even people who were too scared to take part in demonstrations or events they could at least feel connected to the community. They could still understand that there was a community out there for them when they were ready to to make that step. So these these publications and the radio stations served dual purposes, really. They were providing news and information to the community, necessary resources. Um, But at the same time, they were also building the community. And and that's really what needed to happen to have the the legislative uh, victories and the other victories that came about in the 80s and the 90s.
1: Library at Central has uh, Central Connecticut State University has started a LGBTQ archives really. That's right. What kind of things would you find in there? and what kind of things are you looking for in case our listeners have things that ought to be in that collection?
2: Yeah, we really have an amazing uh, collection. It was started back in the 1990s by Frank Agliardi, who was the archivist at the time at the library. He's since retired, but did, he did an, a, a phenomenal job of collecting everything he could find. So we have a complete run of Metroline. We have all of the extant copies of the Griffin and, and the MCC News. But beyond that, we begin to we've we've also gotten the personal papers of so many of these activists who worked on these various issues over the years. In fact, our archive is the most comprehensive gay archive, queer archive in the state. It even, it's even outshines Yale's because we have the, the local people and the local organizations. So we have the papers of the Connecticut Coalition for Lesbian and Gay Civil Rights, which passed the Gay Rights Bill. We have the papers of Carolyn Gable, who was a leading activist at that time and also the owner of the Reader's Feast, which was an important community gathering space. We have papers of Victor Delugan, my mentor. Um, John Benelli, the Connecticut Film Festival has donated their, their archives. We were really excited over the last year, right before the pandemic, we got the papers of Betty Gallo, who had been the lobbyist for really every piece of gay legislation that was you know, was introduced or passed from the 1980s up until very recently, right up to marriage equality. And we also get the papers of the Hartford Gay and Lesbian Health Collect. Um, we also have the papers of MCC and, and other other religious organizations. So, really, anyone who has any interest in Connecticut's. LGBT history could find something in there. If they want to write about religion, it's there. If you want to write about psychology, it's there. If you're there, if you want to talk about politics, it's there. And, you know, it's very exciting to, to see that building. And so we're always looking for more people who would like to give us their records.
1: And what about where did your students look for all the information that's in the, the history timeline?
2: Well, we certainly used the, the collection and the, the archivists there, especially Renata Vickery, were very helpful in getting out information, finding things. Oh, this might be helpful to the timeline. But we also dug deeper. We, you know, it's so great now that so many newspapers are digitized because we could go through the Hartford Current and and other Connecticut papers to find material. We actually had a student who went to the Connecticut State Library to look at the records of the Connecticut State Hospital because during the 1950s and 60s, gay and trans people were often institutionalized because they were seen as somehow uh, mentally ill. So we really dug deep in finding some of this this material. We also interviewed people who remembered the past. We had um, various people contribute photographs from their own personal collections. So it was a it was a very uh, rewarding experience to put that together.
1: Do you find students, whether they're they're gay or straight, do you find students excited about this sort of really recent history?
2: Oh, absolutely, and and I'm glad you point out that it's not just the gay students who are excited about this, you know, when I teach my course, sometimes more than half the class is straight. And, you know, so there's a, there's an interest there. There's an understanding among this younger generation that these stories matter and that all histories intersect and that to understand their own lives and their own world, they need to understand these histories. But for the LGBTQ students, there's, there's a, a hunger for this because they don't know about everything. It's not taught in high schools. It's not. It's not easily accessible to them. This history. Oftentimes, their families are not supportive, so they they there was no way for them to find the history until suddenly you come into a class like this and they sit there wide eyed saying, "Wow, I didn't know that happened. I didn't know that was going on so long ago. I didn't know all of these these stories." And it does empower them, and it, that's really great to see.
1: What do you think uh, the unfinished business is? For the gay community in terms of legislation and protection?
2: Well, I think in many ways, the legislative victories, having won them, so many of them, really gives us a time to be a bit more introspective and to, understand, to look at what this community is and what this community needs. And I, I believe, um, especially over the, the last year, we have to understand the intersectionality of the LGBTQ community. And by that, I mean, no one person has one identity. So if, if we as a community and we as we as a movement are not looking at issues of racial justice, for example, or misogyny, or um, issues of, of social fairness, we're not really serving everyone. So that's a goal. And that's that's sometimes hard to get because people think of the gay movement as simply being about passing laws. But but as the marriage equality fight showed, really, if you get out there into the, the community and you, get, you empower many different faces and voices of this community to speak out, then you're changing hearts and minds. And you're also giving voice to people who in the past did not have a voice. So I think it's, um, it's important to do some introspective and some work within the community to, to, to really look at intersectionality. There are certainly legislative goals still to be had. There are all sorts of exemptions uh, to both the gay and the trans rights law for religious organizations. We have to, I think, relook at that because we want to make sure that no one is being discriminated against because they're being gay, but at the same time, recognizing religious freedom as well. But I think it needs to be revisited and looked at. And there's also the the growing issue of violence against especially trans people in this country. Uh, We need to look at those issues to make... To really make a difference in bringing that violence down.
1: I want to thank you so much for joining me today. We'll have material in our story notes about where you can find the timeline that we talked about. And thank you so much, William, for participating today. Well,
2: thank you for having me. It was really great to have this conversation.
1: My thanks to my guest, Professor William Mann, to find out more about some of Connecticut's LGBTQ icons, including Philip Johnson, Canon Clinton Jones, Howard Metzger, and Frederick Palmer, go to the Connecticut Explored website. I'm Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg.
0: To explore LGBTQ history, go to the website of the Connecticut Historical Society and look for the digital exhibition, Historic Timeline of Connecticut's LGBTQ Community. Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine and TodayInConnecticutHistory.com. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.